We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 266. Our guest today is a USDF gold medalist, author, horse development specialist, and natural horsemanship instructor. She's been studying and teaching natural horsemanship for over 20 years, combining the happiness of the horse with the results needed for competition and horse development. It is such a crucial and important combination that horses are good at what they do, but they also enjoy what they do. And our guest today truly practices that with her business, Raising the Bar. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Kathy Barr. Hi, Kathy. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. I'm glad I could join you today. Yeah, well, I'm so excited to hear your whole story. First, tell me how you first kind of got started into the equestrian industry. That's a great question. <laughs> um, my, my first start in the industry really came from the love of horses. Um, we grew up in a city, so it wasn't, uh, I wasn't like on a family farm or anything like that. And I just always been incredibly drawn to horses, at least from the time that I can remember. I was fortunate enough that just before high school, we moved to a house that was only three miles from a thoroughbred breeding farm, um, kind of breeding and layup farm. So I was able to, during high school, to walk home from school and then ride my bike out to the farm. So it was a great experience because I was able to work off board for a horse that I ended up purchasing and I got to learn a ton and fortunately didn't get too injured in the process. So that was kind of what sort of put into action my love for horses was that ability to be close to a farm, kind of do whatever I could to be involved in the horses and working. And from there, I started showing a little bit and I kind of hit or a little bit of a roadblock in that I realized that in the showing, my horses weren't having fun. Um, and when my horses weren't having fun and weren't enjoying themselves, it also made it so that it wasn't very enjoyable for me. I had this vision that being with horses and having that kind of relationship would be a little bit like the relationship that in the movie, the Black Stallion had with his little boy, where not only did I love the horse, but my horse loved me and was excited to see me and we did things together. And at the time, that wasn't really the reality of what was happening. So at that point, I actually, you know, was kind of going down the pre-vet thing in, mm. in school. And I made a big transition and decided to completely switch tracks and get rid of horses altogether because they weren't, I couldn't have that relationship I was looking for. And right about then is when I started to learn more about natural horsemanship and actually started, I saw my first little clip of a Pirelli uh, video. And at that point I switched and uh, I went out to Colorado and started studying natural horsemanship. And I spent the next 10 years at the Pirelli Center. Um, so the first five, I just studied my horsemanship. And the next five was all about studying teachermanship, how to be a better teacher, 
uh, for horses and for humans. Um, so that kind of that 10 year study sort of boosted me into the actual industry from just being a horse lover to actually being a professional. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, I feel like you answered a lot of my questions that I had for you. (laughs) You're obviously so accomplished in many areas of the sport, um, having competed to the highest level of dressage and then also teaching natural horsemanship. How do those, how do you feel like those two components of what you do really work hand in hand? How does natural horsemanship really support the dressage goals that you have and vice versa? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, it's actually kind of funny because although I've competed in dressage through Grand Prix and got my gold medal with this incredible horse that sort of came into my life, my passion when I first started was eventing. Like mm. the, I remember being a little kid at horse camp and I was on this, uh, I got, <laughs> so I'm also six foot one. So as a kid, I was tall early. So when we first started horse camp, we were on ponies, but after like my first year at horse camp, when my feet were dragging on the ground, I was like bumped off the pony (laughs) to a full-sized horse. And I just thought it was like the first full-sized horse I'd ever ridden. She was white, you know, used to be gray. And I just thought she was magical. And uh, at the last day of horse camp, um, we got to do this competition. So uh, basically you just kind of walk trot around the arena to show your parents that you've done something. And then they had a jumping class and the jumping class, uh, they put a little cross rail between uh, the standards and the cross rail was probably raised about two inches off the ground. So, you know, it was like a six foot, six inch cross rail. Yeah. So, but I went over that cross rail and I was convinced that I was like flying and that this white horse I was on was this wonderful unicorn and I was just in heaven. And from that moment on, I was like, all I ever want to do is go fast and jump over stuff on horses. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, like I mentioned before that, that kind of thought that I wanted my horses to like it as well. And I wanted them to be part of that journey. So for me, when I found the thing that stuck with me when I first saw the natural horsemanship is that not only the people that I was watching, but the students of these people, their horses were running to them. Like they would be in an arena and the horses would see their human and ears forward, nobody chasing them, nobody making them, but the horses just chose to run to their human. And at that time, my off the track thoroughbred, um, she was a mare and she was out in a field of 13 other mares. And the only way I could catch her was to bring in 12 of the other horses. And then when the only option was to be a prey animal alone in a field or me, she was like, well, fine, I guess you can catch me. And so then I'd catch her and turn the other 12 out. So this idea that like there were, (laughs) there were people on earth who could uh, be desirable enough to their horses to get them to come to them. That's really what kind of sparked my interest. So from that little piece of riding that little white horse over six inch cross rails with the jumping side, like that part of my brain at that point made the decision that I wanted to compete and jump and, you know, feel that feeling of flying for the rest of my life. And then that feeling, seeing that horses could actually be like the black stallion and run towards humans and want to be involved. Um, Those two pieces really kind of shaped where I've gone since. So I guess it sort of reflects on me being a little bit simple. But um, when I first went out to the Prairie Ranch, like at that point, I thought, you know, well, if I want to jump and I want to compete, the best thing I can want to do is go to the Olympics. So I walked up at the time I had uh, 
a warm blood mare, a big 17 two hand black horse. And I walked up to Pat Fraley at the time. It was my first year out there. He didn't know who I was. And I just walked up to him and I was like, I want to ride in the Olympics and I want to go to the Olympics in eventing. Um, and I want to use natural horsemanship to get there so that my horses can like the journey. What level do I need to be in your program to make that happen? <laughs> so I was a little bit, um, not a lot of humble pie at that point, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he told me. And so I just thought to myself, he said level six. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll go back and talk to Mr. Pirelli when I'm level six and I uh, kind of rode my horse away. So for me, just those two little pieces have always kind of sparked that interest of whether I'm competing and jumping, whether uh, I'm doing a demonstration in front of people, bareback and bridalist. No matter what I'm doing, I want to be achieving as good of results as I can and know how to. And I want my horses, I want to have that feeling that they want to be there. They want to show up the next day when I come out to the pasture you know, I want that feeling that when they see me coming, maybe they nicker to me um, and certainly at least are not running away from me. Um, so I'd say those two things have kind of shaped everything I did and uh, or have done so far. I'm still doing <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the dressage journey was really cool because we had a very unique horse come into training that had an awesome owner and he had already done dressage through Grand Prix but she was interested in kind of getting him and developing a foundation so that he could also be ridden bridalist and he could also be ridden on trail rides and that you could play with him without a halter and a lead and that he would, you know, come to you and you could do that in open space and that he would interact and whatnot. So when he came, we kind of paused on developing or maintaining any of the sort of high level dressage things. And we really just focused on developing that foundation um, where sort of kind of broadening his horizons, which is the opposite of what we often try to do, which is develop the foundation and then build the specialization. But it was a neat, a neat project for him to have such a specialized horse, bring him back, develop the foundation in the relationship with him, and then take him back into the show world um, and kind of help each other through that journey, him helping me learn as I went, and then kind of me helping him on the relationship side so that uh, we could both come out good for the experience. Pat Pirelli has been on the podcast before. He's incredible. What what would you say are some things that, I mean, obviously you've learned so much. What are some things that really like stick out in your mind or things that you have made a big part of your own program um, from what you've learned from Pat? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, we were, we were really lucky at the time that my husband and I were there learning. It was also a really active time. So not only was it Pat and Linda, there developing kind of their specialties and whatnot, but they had a lot of top level people come in at the time, you know, David and Karen O'Connor were coming in and teaching camps. So being able to be a part of that um, and Walter Zettel was coming in um, Leon Harrell and Craig Johnson are some of the ones on the Western side. So the, the fast, and we had wonderful driving horse people. So I think the biggest thing that I took away from that, and the biggest thing that sort of, uh, inspired us from that experience is the kind of depth of how many different disciplines are related with the foundation of the horsemanship. So not only being able to spend time with people that are at the top of their specialty, but learning how 
kind of the base level of those specialties is all the same. It's that horsemanship on the base level, understanding, being able to read the horses so that you can progress. And obviously the specialties look different after that, but that kind of underlying message is the same. So I would say that, and then, and then moving forward, kind of taking that theme of almost cross training, but developing a solid foundation on any of the horses that come into the farm or that we have in our lives as personal horses and knowing that that foundation will pay off. Like in the beginning, it feels like you're taking a lot of time not focusing on the specialty, but in the end, the progress and the enjoyment is so much greater because you take that time to build that solid foundation in the beginning. So I think the the foundation, if I were to say what else, I think being in that environment helped me learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that could always be better, but that knowing that the only way to grow is continuing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation and that the kind of the most rewarding things happen in life when you almost start to love being in that place, because that's where you are when you're learning and growing and discovering new things and making new connections and those sorts of things. So on a personal side, I would say sort of embracing the uncomfortable so that you can have that lifelong learning. And now you and your husband, John, are running Raising the Bar. I like the name where you're focusing on, you know, educating horse and rider. Tell me, give me a little rundown of your program, what it's like and kind of what are your core principles that you teach? Yeah, excellent. We have two basic sides that we do. So uh, we have the horse development, which is a lot like horse training where horses come into the farm and they stay with us and they're in our care. And one of the things that we're able to be really particular on because we have, you know, a little bit of a smaller operation intentionally um, is that we believe that any interaction the horses have with humans, there's learning happening. So that learning is either headed in the direction that you're trying to create or headed in the other direction. So we're very particular about even things as simple as like what time the horses are fed, who's feeding them, who's handling them, who's leading them in and out of the pastures. Um, So 99% of the time, that's my husband and myself. And it's because those are situations where the young horses have the opportunity to learn how to push into pressure, how to learn how to be fearful or not, to be braver or not, to be responsive. And if we can be involved in those situations, then it creates everything as a learning environment so that the horses that come in, anytime they're handled, even when the stalls are being cleaned, if there's a horse in a stall, it's my husband or I cleaning it because that ability to move around the horses and whatnot, uh, we're, we're really particular on where the horses are in their environment so that everything here, the design is that their whole experience here is about learning and education. It's not just the 30 or 45 minute session that they have with us or whatnot. So it's kind of an intensive learning environment for the horses. Just like I mentioned that we kind of try to embrace that idea of falling in love with being uncomfortable. We kind of try to keep things new and changing for the horses so that they're always growing. Uh, And then on the other side of that, we have the human training side of things. So we, of course, do haul-in lessons where we have local students that just bring their horses in and take lessons. Um, But then we also really enjoy doing the longer clinics and camps so that we can get people with their horse here for five to seven days and just really 
not have to, you know, split time between horses and work and all the stuff that happens in our normal life, but where uh, for people, you can just kind of forget that outside world as much as possible, dive in, have a safe place for learning so that you're not trying to look good or wonder what somebody's judging you with. The whole goal is to come and not look good and get fumbled and be awkward because that's what lets us all know that we're in that learning zone. So creating a safe learning environment for humans is the, the second fold of what we do. Do you ever look at incredible horse show setups or a really well turned out horse at the horse show and they have the perfect scrim that's monogrammed and color coordinated or just stunning tack room drapes at the horse show? Well, the clothes horse has been manufacturing custom made horse blankets, tack room drapes, trunk covers since 1972. Every single order is taken and entered into a computer as a custom order. So all all the details are spelled out according to the customer's specific requests and needs. Then each individual order is cut in chronological order, one piece at a time by hand. I can't think of hardly, I mean, really any businesses that still do that today. I think their attention to detail is absolutely incredible. So if you are looking for blankets, tack room stuff, or maybe just an incredible horse show setup, Go check out The Clothes Horse. It's The Clothes Horse, C-L-O-T-H-E-S dot com. And learn a little bit about all the different products that they have and the services they offer. Again, that's theclotheshorse.com. What do you feel like you could do that really makes that environment that learning zone? Because I do feel like that's a big part of the industry is comparison and not wanting to mess up in front of others. Um, What is that? What have you kind of been able to create that you feel like, you know, the people that you work with in the Raising the Bar program that they feel like they can really get to that place? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it starts, I mean, as simple as a conversation and, you know, talking about what it feels like to be in that, because that's, I think, something that doesn't happen a lot for adult learners is that we don't talk about what it feels like to learn and what it feels like to feel awkward. Um, So first, just discussing that, discussing that it may feel awkward, it may feel uncomfortable. Um, A lot of times as adults, uh, we don't put ourselves in situations where we're learning a new trade or learning a whole new skill very often. So first, the discussion about it so that we can recognize the feeling. And then making sure that there can also be kind of a two-way connection so that if if you're here and you're not feeling uncomfortable, like let us know because we need to push some more buttons or, you know, raise the level of expectation or whatnot. Or if you're here and it's too overwhelming and whether that can be a conversation with us or you need to write us a note or send us a text, like whatever, whatever feels the best for you so you can get that across so that we develop that ability to communicate. So I think communication, talking about the feeling of learning, and then as humans, we just need lots of reminders, you know, like who felt uncomfortable today? Awesome. Give your, give the person beside you a high five. You know, that's, that's what it's supposed to be like, because we're trying to learn something. And if, if you didn't feel uncomfortable, come talk to me after, and I'll find a way to make you uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in the best way possible. Um, So conversations and then reminders that the the lack of comfort is why you're here. And it's, it's a positive thing. It doesn't have to mean that your brain needs to kick into survival mode to keep you alive. Right. Right. 
Um, obviously, you've now seen a lot of horses, you know, across the country, so many different breeds, so many different disciplines through your training program. What are some consistencies that you see, whether that is consistent pain points or problems? And then what do you kind of see that you can do that horse owners can feel to have kind of that happier and healthier horse? Good question. You know, the, the great thing about horses is no matter where you go or how much somebody paid for them, the horses have this wonderful simplicity in their nature. And so it doesn't matter, you know, if you've just got a horse that's come out of a thoroughbred sale or the Keeneland sale, and they've, you know, got many commas in their price tag, or if a horse has just come from a rescue, um, those horses have the same basic needs for feeling comfortable, for feeling safe, for feeling able to be good learners. So I would say that's the con- one of the consistencies. And the, the other side of that is the challenges. So when we meet horses that are having challenges, it's generally because the humans in their life aren't understanding that simple nature of the horses. They maybe aren't understanding or don't know how to meet the needs of the horses. And most issues are coming from that place. So that maybe on an underlying level, the horses don't feel safe. And that's of course, easier to see on horses that are really expressive. You know, like as soon as they don't feel safe, it's like a kite on a windy day. But there's also horses that when they don't feel safe, they just get super quiet. And those are the ones where a lot of times the issues people have with those horses will be described as all of the sudden out of nowhere, he took off bucking or whatnot. But those are the horses where there were some things missed in what the horses are communicating with their body language. um, And that led to the problem down the road, or it can be just a little bit of not feeling safe or comfortable. And each repetition of whatever's going on, the trip into the show ring or the trailer loading or whatnot, it just gets a little bit bigger each time until it's a pretty big issue. So, and a lot of the horses that come to us or come to clinics, it is because there's an issue. You know, a lot of people have goals, trail riding or showing, and when it works, you just keep doing it because it's working Mm -hmm. as, as you feel it should. Um, And then a lot of people don't kind of seek out sort of alternative training or natural horsemanship or think about doing stuff on the ground until there's an issue, or maybe it's even a last resort. You know, it's like, well, he's either going to the kill pin or we'll try this for a month and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of those come from the simplicity of the horses and that somewhere down the line, the humans have missed what the horses need and the problems build on that. Right. Right. So give me kind of a rundown of, you know, you said I was, I was literally going to ask you if you feel like most of the horses that come to you are horses that are, you know, there's some problem, some issue wanting to be solved. What do you, is there a kind of like a common pathway that you take all of your horses through as far as like kind of getting to the root of the issue or, you know, on the road to understanding that horse or having that horse feel understood? Tell me a little bit about the process once they're kind of in your care and kind of under your plan. Yeah. Well, we generally don't start with 
the problem and go from there. Like if they're bucking under saddle, we usually don't get on and try to make them buck and see what's yeah. happening. Uh-huh. Um, we, we kind of have a skeleton of things that we go through or a system things that we go through to sort of check out. So if a horse comes with bucking, you know, kind of knowing, well, it could be generally it's because he's afraid. So there's something that's causing the fear, which then has the flight and then there's claustrophobia and then the bucking happens or he's, you know, unhappy or uncomfortable. And the bucking is like trying to remove the problem, which is the human. So starting back a few steps and going, well, are there other environments where maybe it's a claustrophobic fear thing? Are there other environments that set up that claustrophobia and checking those things out? Even if it's as simple as going, well, a lot of times bucking horses, for example, may also have a challenge being tied. So they may also be a pullback horse mm-hmm. or sometimes bucking horses will also not trailer load well. Um, so there's a few things like that that we start to check out. And the neat thing about being able to kind of puzzle solve and reverse and sort of know that checklist is it's a little bit like having that um, if you've ever cooked the holiday meal where you know, there's dishes that are easy, right? They've got like gravy and potatoes smeared on them, super easy to clean up after the holiday meal. But then there's some stuff that was like in the oven and maybe it cooked for two hours and then maybe it got left in for an extra Mm -hmm. hour on accident. And the stuff on that is like hard to get off. So I would like liken the stuff that's stuck on that pan to the issues that these horses are having when they come often. It is like hard baked on, securely stuck. To the, what used to be the shiny pan. Yeah. Um, so if you can fill your, do your soapy warm water in your sink and just stick that pan down on the bottom and let it sit while you do those easy dishes, while you wipe off the potato ones, and maybe you work a little bit harder on a few of the others. Um, and you just let that pan sit in there by doing all those little pieces and giving that deeper issue time the soap and the warm water and the time, it all kind of works to dissolve that hard, crusty stuff a little bit for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's also with the horses, rather than just getting on a bucking horse and trying to ride them until they don't buck anymore, going, well, how could we really solve these other little pieces? How can we work on these other issues that could have led there so that the horses don't have to go to the big problem? I love that. I think that that's super applicable for any program because there's, I mean, obviously a big part of our sport and our, and this kind of equestrian lifestyle that we live in is that you are attempting to communicate with your partner that doesn't speak your language. And so just trying to always figure out what the horse needs and what the horse is enjoying of its life, what, what maybe stresses the horse out and, you know, continuing to make the horse feel stronger and confident and happier doing what it's doing, because I mean, the reality of it is they do so much for us without, you know, any wanting anything in return, you know, just try so many of our, the horses that we work with are just seeking to please and seeking to understand what we're trying to, you know, verbalize to them through our aids. And so I just think, it's what you are doing is such an incredible addition to that to really allow um, a lot of these horses to feel heard and to feel understood. And then in reality, making them really enjoy what they do and, and really love their job. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think a big piece of that is just like for humans, helping the horses learn how to be really good learners, Hmm. which is an interesting concept that probably doesn't even get discussed enough with humans and kids in education systems, but um, also for horses, like can a horse, because a lot of horses come to us and they're really unconfident learners, or they haven't ever been in a situation where they have been able to learn how to learn so that people through best intentions, maybe are just kind of managing prey animal behavior rather than setting up puzzles for the horses to figure out and learn through. And the if in the foundation you can develop those horses to be great learners and to be confident learners, then it doesn't matter which professional trainer they go to or which discipline they go to, they're going to be able to figure out uh, what that person wants faster and sooner and be, because there's not emotion involved. They know how to learn. They're not stressed about learning so that if we can help those young horses that come in that don't already have issues, because we do get some that are just fresh starts. The big goal is how do we get these horses to be excellent learners that are confident learners. So no matter where they go, they can just show up ready. And there's not a bunch of stuff that they have to get through to get to the learning. Definitely. I mean, the question I ask every guest about an area of the industry that you're passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about. I feel like that's a huge, huge one, like a huge answer to that question because it's so true. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you feel like you'd want to shed some light on that maybe other people don't know a lot about or don't talk a lot about? I, uh, for me, I really think it is that understanding the horse's viewpoint first and not Mm. just the horse's viewpoint as in like, well, is he getting exactly the amount of pounds of grain that he needs compared to his weight and his workload and has the vet seen him? All that is very important too, but like just from a basic needs, that safety, comfort, play, does, are the horse's needs being met? And if not, also how does he perceive things? So as simple as you know, what is my horse going to likely perceive when I'm in the warm up ring with a whole herd of other horses, which he perceives as a safe place. And then I ask him to trot, can, or walk away from that warm up ring, perhaps on like a cross country, eventing cross country, and then gallop the exact opposite direction of the other horses. You know, if my horse has trouble with that, like, could I think about why that might be? And if I understand if humans understand why that is or why that might be hard for the horses, then it can help give us the approach that sets up success so that we can help the horses for it in the future. Whereas I think occasionally people can get stuck taking things personally with the horses and feeling like the horses are doing it to them or just to be a jerk, which isn't the case. Like I said, in the, like they are simple, simple things, which is why we're so attracted, not emotionally, you know, simple, Mm -hmm. but they're, they have simple needs. And if we can understand that first and take our, he's not doing it to me. It's not personal. Take those feelings of being attacked with his behavior and go, what kind of patterns do we need to set up to help him so that he can get to yes. Um, I think one thing that you just said is definitely something that could be applied to a lot of us who work with horses on a daily basis is the 
aspect of play for horses. I think that um, so often, not just in high performance programs, but um, in any program that may be um, working towards a goal or very focused on, um, you know, exercise and fitness and the program, um, getting ready for shows, things like that, um, that we kind of lose that element of play, which I think, you know, like the horses are very like playful, curious creatures. What are some things, any like practical things or exercises that you recommend for us riders and horse owners to be kind of implementing in our program that allows horses to be able to do that? That's a really good question because, you know, I even have to remind myself because it's human nature to kind of get driven towards a goal and then, Mm -hmm. you know, get as direct line towards that goal as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So even for me, because I do competing just on my personal horses for the love of it, mid competition season, I have to kind of remind myself that this needs to stay fun for my horses occasionally. Yeah. Um, so for me, maybe if I'm, you know, with my horses six or seven days a week, maybe I intentionally take a day and I go this day, or maybe I do two days one day so that I, it doesn't affect their fitness schedule or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I just do some Liberty play. So we go in an open space and we just play or, I might do like an Easter egg hunt with the horses. So I might go into an environment and like put uh, little treats either under a cone or on the barrel or the tarp or the wall, and then kind of go with my horse and let them see if I can send them to those little things and let them find those little treats. Mm. Um, So any kind of little, little sort of silly thing, um, sometimes it's as simple as at the end of a ride and it's not necessarily super playful as in like giggly play, but I may set it up so that my horses, uh, feed I have at the far end of the arena that's away from the barn. And after I ride, and after I've gone on my cool down hack, we ride over to that far end of the arena and I hop off and I slide off the bridle and they get to munch on a little bit of food while I'm untacking or whatnot. Mm. So just, just kind of setting that up because for Sometimes at the end of the ride, my horse doesn't necessarily need a whole game, but the idea that we finished a ride and arrived at the food and it wasn't by the barn, that kind of creates its own curiosity in and of itself. Definitely. Oh, I love that. I think those are great tips. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time and walking us through what you do. I think that we all could benefit from including more Um, of what you do in our programs as well. So thank you so much for all of your wisdom. And um, where can people learn more about what you do in your program? Um, They can. So we have a website, jkbar.com. The only thing tricky about that is our last name is different than everyone else. It's two A's and one R (laughs) in bar. Um, So our website there, and then it has all of our contact information and whatnot. Amazing. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Bethany. Have a great day. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.